here's the here's the coolest thing. Someone brought eggs for my wife this morning. Sean stepped on them. But uh, look at this. It's cr- right. It's green. Green eggs and ham. I thought it was just like old eggs, and and that's why the green eggs and ham guy looked the way he did. But apparently, they actually make green eggs. And light green. And too much broccoli, as it is. And brown. Hey, welcome to Element. If you're new, we talk about eggs. The incredible edible egg. Uh, if you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes and all the communion tables around the room. If you have a smartphone, we can download an app called Uversion. But you can click on a live. It'll pull us up by GPS, and you'll get all the sermon notes and verses we go through this morning. Just to let you all know that softball starts tomorrow night. I think Britt and my wife are very excited about it. <laughs> I'm really worried about it because it's cold. I don't like being cold and I'm a baby. So that's softball. Woohoo. Uh, uh, usually the first Saturday of every month, the, the ladies do a hike. We call it the women's first Saturday hike. Now what we started to do for the guys is do these things called MO events, Men of Element, M-O-E. So we're doing these Men of Element events. The first one was like our shotgun Saturday last month. We went four by fouring. And then this month, a guy named Donald is in charge of this, and we're doing a hike. And so this hike is going to Bishop's Peak. And this month, the, the women and the men are combining their hikes together. I think this is because the men are going to fall and hurt themselves. They're going to want somebody to take care of them. So the women are like, please take kids, make it. Or not. Okay. But second Saturday of the month. Men and women are doing a hike. There's a sign up in the back. You can sign up to go on the hike against the Bishop's Peak. So it's a little more stringent hike than some of the other ones they've done lately. But you're good. You can handle it. Maybe. There'll be girls there. Yeah. It'll be good for you. Why don't you stay on the reading to God's Word? Sean Jones is right. You guys are a dead crowd this morning. That's. I think it's the coldness. Anybody ever go skiing or snowboarding? Anybody? You ever like not wear a face thing, get down to the bottom of the hill and your face is all numb, you can't talk? Yeah, that's what you guys are like. All right. <laughs> Psalm 68, verse 4. It says, Sing to God, sing praise to His name. Extol Him who rides on the clouds. His name is the Lord and rejoice before Him. Let's pray. Father, this morning we as a people ask that we would learn how to extol You and rejoice before You. That we as Your children understand You in the ways that You have revealed Yourself so we could live in great surety of who you are and what you call us to be, and that everything we do would reflect you. Amen. Have a seat. So we were doing this series called The Missing Words. we got this week and next week, and then we're done. Then we'll hit the Book of Lamentations, and you're so excited about it. I know, you can't contain yourself. The most depressing book in the Bible. It'll be, it'll be great. Uh, the missing words are words that Jesus intentionally left unsaid to convey a deeper meaning. He would say certain things and leave some other things out so the students would do the hard work of figuring out what that is. Now, in our financial class we're doing on a Wednesday night this week, they kind of did this, and I'm not stealing this from them. Okay, So they stole it from me, but I was going to do this with you this week anyway. There are certain things in our culture. I could say some things, and you could then finish the slogans. Let's try it. Okay, Help, I've fallen, and I... Okay, for the five of you, that was great. Uh, don't squeeze the... See, ah, toilet paper, we're all down on that one. I can't believe it's not... See, that's amazing. I thought I was totally going to have to be... I can't believe it's not. You know, 
my wife would be like, you can't watch that commercial anymore because I, I always be like, I can't believe it's not butter. You know, I did that whole letter. Have a Coke and a... Ah, see, it's like four or five. You must be old because that's an old slogan. But that's good. I'm sorry. That's good. Old soul. How's that? How's that? You instinctively know certain things because you're part of the culture. You can add those missing words. Now, when Jesus did this, it wasn't as mundane as don't squeeze the toilet paper or something like that. But there, there are certain things in Scripture. If you were, grew up in a first century Jewish home, you would instinctively know these things that are being said. We're 2,000 years removed from this, so sometimes it's a good idea to get a deeper idea of what's going on in the Scriptures. Now, today I'm going to share with you a term you've probably heard if you've ever read your Bible a hundred times, but we're going to talk about what it really means. This term is the Son of Man. For a lot of people who come across the phrase, the Son of Man, they think it's uh, enigmatic. For a couple of weeks ago, my hermeneutic, enigmatic, simply means mysterious. It's one of the most mysterious phrases that ever came from Jesus' lips during his public ministry. And it's full of missing words as to what it relates to. The Son of Man. Jesus actually uses this title of himself over 80 times in the Gospels. And he uses it always in the third person. Like he's always talking about himself in the third person when he says it. When we encounter people who talk about themselves in the third person, we think they're odd. Like Bob Dole. Like, oh, Bob Dole's going to listen. Bob Dole. We're like, oh, that's kind of funny. Like if I talk about myself in the third person, like, oh, Aaron's going to this and Aaron's that. Aren't you Aaron? Well, yeah. But when Jesus does it, what he, does, he uses it to refer to all that the Scripture said he would be. So he uses it much better than Bob Dole or I would ever do. If you have a Bible, open to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. Verse 26. And, in, and this is where Jesus starts to talk about something called the end of the age. This is not the end of days. This is the end of the age. An era was closing at the end of the age. Mark 13, verse 26. Jesus says this. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Now, the whole point here is Son of Man. And the clouds and the glory and all that, they, they all speak to who the Son of Man is. And what does that mean, the Son of Man? If you look at many commentaries today, they will say, well, Jesus is just showing great humility by calling himself the Son of Man. One puts it like this, though divine, Jesus relates to our human condition. And they say this because son of man in Hebrew would have been uh, ben Adam, which is son of a man. Or Aramaic is bar Anash, which is son of a man. These can refer to a human being in general. So they think when Jesus points this out, he's saying, look, I'm the true fulfillment of what a human being was always supposed to be. And the point that Jesus is the fulfillment of what a human being was supposed to be and that he is humble is true, but you can't really use Son of Man to prove it because Son of Man is not a title of humility. It's a title of glory and honor. So in, in Mark 13, now flip over to Mark 14, one chapter over to the right. Look at starting in verse 61. It says, again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming on the clouds of heaven. Now turn one book over to Luke chapter 21. I know it's going to be on the screen. Look it up anyway. Unless you have a smartphone, you're like, zip, I'm there. Luke chapter 21, starting in verse 26. says, men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world. From the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And at that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Again, the point of all these is the Son of Man. Glory, great power on the clouds. It all points to the Son of Man. When Jesus uses this term, he makes very bold claims as about him being the Messiah and also about him being God. Now, open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. You're like... What? Yes. Open a lot today. 
To catch what Jesus truly says, the Son of Man, in the missing words, you've got to understand how the Jewish people of this time would have understood the word Son of Man. It is interpreted as a key messianic prophecy from the book of Daniel about a figure called the Son of Man. Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 13. Daniel says this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. Oh, well, that sounds familiar. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So Daniel says, one night he has this very vivid dream, much like you and I would after we watched a scary movie, ate too much pizza, too much ice cream, something like that. It's like, oh, I've got vivid dreams. In this dream, he sees a great court session, and the session takes place in heaven. And then all of a sudden, bam, one like a son of man comes in the clouds of heaven. And immediately this person then approaches the Ancient of Days. This is God the Father. And he is given authority, glory, and sovereign power. Then Daniel goes on to say, All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now you have to understand, Daniel, when it is written, is at a time when the Jewish people are in captivity again. They are looking for God to come and redeem, to restore them again. They had walked away from God. Now they're looking for a restoration again, a Messiah. In the first century, this passage in Daniel was universally understood to be a reference to this coming Messiah who would redeem and restore them. The book of Daniel predicts the rise of great kingdoms that would eventually fall to the authority of one supreme king, a king who would rule forever. And this is the pinnacle of Daniel's prophecy where a human-like figure enters God's throne room. He is crowned then sits down to reign forever and he is called the Son of Man. Jewish scholars point to this passage from Daniel as the most potent messianic prophecy in all of Scripture. Now, there are other messianic prophecies that can be interpreted as pointing to a human king, like in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But this one in Daniel predicts the Messiah will be divine. How does it do that? Because it speaks of one like a son of man. The person merely seems human, but he is actually far more. And so Jesus references himself as Son of Man in Mark 13, 14, uh, Luke 21, and again, another 77 times over this throughout the Gospels. He's linking himself with this person from Daniel chapter 7, and his audience would know exactly what he was saying. Well, just to show you what happens in Mark chapter 14, the full verse, when they ask him, are you the Messiah? He says, I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming with the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. You're like, well, what is that? He's like, it's like WWE. It's like, ah, we're going to... No, this is like great anguish. And, he's, and it's like, I can't believe you would just say something like that. And the, and the high priest says, why do we need any more witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? Because he claimed to be God. They knew what he was saying. And they all condemned him as worthy of death. They knew exactly what Jesus was claiming when he says this. And this is important to know these claims of Jesus that he's making about himself. Because for, for two reasons. One, over the last hundred years, lots of skeptics have tried to make a case that says, oh, well, Jesus was a humble rabbi. He never claimed to be anything more than that. Other people take the opposite point altogether and run along and they say, oh, well, and they put it all in this crazy left-behind mess. And these people fail to understand the very Jewish way that Jesus communicated to his first century audience, that he is God, Messiah, Son of Man. They completely miss the shocking assertions that Jesus makes concerning himself. And this actually started all the way back in AD 70. 
Now, in AD 70, what happens is you have a Jewish revolt. The Jews are tired of Rome oppressing them, and the revolt against Rome. Rome comes in and essentially destroys Jerusalem in 70 AD. Most of the Jews that were Christians resided in Jerusalem. Most of them were killed. After 70 AD, Christianity essentially becomes a Gentile movement. And Gentile believers failed to realize the implications of the use of Jesus' phrase, the Son of Man. The church fathers actually rarely used the title because they could never understand why Jesus seemed to be speaking of himself as a lowly human being. And it's sad because it's Jesus' Jewish claims to be the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy goes sailing right past him, as it does so many people today. And I think it is amazing that it is Jesus' own words, not even the early churches, that was the source of all these exceedingly powerful self-declarations of Messiah and Godhood. Jesus claims to be God over all. For Jews today who still read the scriptures, who are very orthodox in, in what they believe, and they've actually read Jesus' words, these words are very hard for them to reconcile. And I know now you're asking, so what does this really mean for us? Right? I'm glad you asked. That's, that's, that's where we're going. What I want to do is I want you to see how John the disciple, Jesus' best friend and his buddy Son, understood this because he has a unique position relating to the Son of Man. How this all relates to the Son of Man right on the clouds of heaven, bringing glory and, and heaven and redemption of all creation. This is the point of the Son of Man coming, the Messiah, to bring redemption. And redemption is more than just redemption of you and I. Redemption is the redemption of creation. In the 1980s, there's this guy named Hal Lindsey, and he writes this book called The Late Great Planet Earth, like it's doomed to destruction or something. Paul, in Romans chapter 8, 19 to 21, says this, The creation awaits an eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, and hoped that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Essentially what he says is God loves this world he made. He doesn't want to preside over its demise. Redemption is the redemption of everything. God plans to make everything right again. And if that is something you want, you look at the world, and say, man, this needs to be made right, there's something wrong with it, then you want heaven. You want what heaven entails, the redemption of all things. Heaven is a huge concept. The Son of Man is a huge concept. If you had a memory before your birth, like if you can remember like swimming in the water in the womb, it's all nice and it's all comfortable, but it's a tiny little world. And all of a sudden you come out and it's like sights and sounds and someone's smacking you on the butt. It's like, what's going on? I, I, you, know, you, you probably had a lot of reservations maybe about leaving the womb if you had a memory of it. You know, you're like big head, little hole. You, you, you got to go down the tunnel. I mean, what, what's going to happen? And then you get on the other side and you had no idea the world's as big as it is. And that is the difference between where we're at now and the redemption of all creation of how we even see Christ now. And then Son of Man in His glory, the difference is just huge like that. The difference between heaven and the redemption of all things, Son of Man, Jesus in His glory. When, when the writers of Scripture try to describe aspects of heaven, they're trying to describe something that's just indescribable. It, they use images to help us understand and convey things that, that they're trying just to get across, but it's like, oh, it's so much bigger than you can ever imagine. C.S. Lewis writes this, There is no need to be worried by facetious people who try to make the Christian hope of heaven ridiculous by saying that they do not want to spend eternity playing harps. Good, neither do I. The answer to such people is that if they cannot understand books written for grown-ups, they should not talk about them at all. All the scriptural imagery, harps, crowns, gold, and so on, is of course a symbolical attempt to express the inexpressible. People who take these symbols literally might well think that when Christ told us to be like doves, he meant that we were to lay eggs. Okay? So what I want to do... 
and the restoration of all things. I want to give you some images of heaven because it's all important from where we're going. I always seem to take the long way around, but that's just me, so you've got to go with me. Uh, most of the images of heaven that we have are from this guy named John, Jesus' best friend. He's in prison on an island away from those he loves, and he writes in Revelation 14, 13, Then I heard a voice from heaven say, right, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Now, most people, we don't think at death, being blessed with death. You never open the obituaries and go, oh, so-and-so was blessed with death, right? Nobody ever says that. But John says they were happy and fortunate because they were in the Lord. That translates as now they are alive. They're beginning to understand the redemption of creation and Christ in his glory. So what are the images of heaven and the redemption of all things, and what does that look like? I'll show you four different ones. Uh, Revelation 21, 21. Last book in the Bible. You can't miss it. It's like if you hit like the coordinates, it's gone too far. Go back. Revelation 21. Almost even, yeah, last book, chapter, we're good. <laughs> Revelation 21, 21 says this. The great street of the city was, was of pure gold, like transparent glass. So how many of you have heard the streets of heaven are paved with gold? Right? Oh, oh it's so wonderful. Why? Why wouldn't anybody pave their streets with gold? Are the traffic lights gold? Are the curbs gold? Are the bike paths gold? You know, what's, what's the deal with that? What John is saying is that heaven is a place where money no longer matters. We will not be divided by it. We will live in community with one another. No suicide bombers, no broken homes. We will experience deep, open, intimate, joy-filled relationships with each other. In John chapter 14, verse 2, Jesus says this, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. I have actually heard people give sermons on how big the square footage of heaven is. And they will say, and if this many people got saved over the course of time, then your square footage will be this big. Like it's yours. It's God's. It's not yours. Oh, yours will be this big. And, and you get a room. And it's a, Seriously, I get a room. Do I get to pick out the carpet, the wallpaper, the lamps? I mean, what, what, what do I get to do with that? It's, that's kind of crazy. What will your room look like? Jesus isn't saying you get a house and a room. He's saying you finally find a home. You have a home in Him. When people buy a house, they put time into the house, taste, judgment. Over time, it becomes a home. My grandma used to make cream of wheat. I walk in the house, but ah, oh, smells like grandma's house. That's that's what it was. I mean, anybody grandma cream of wheat? Golly, you guys don't have any cool grandmas that make cream of wheat. The the word home in in English, one of the definitions for it is a place to belong and be safe. Heaven will not seem strange when the redemption of all things come about. We will feel like we have finally come home. Revelation 19. So we're in 21. Flip over. Revelation 19, verse 8. It says, fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. That's the bride of Christ. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. So white, dressed in white. What is that? You know, no t-shirts, no leisure suits. If you're an old dude and you want a leisure suit, no blue jeans, no spaghetti strap tops, no one-piece bedding suits. I can't wear a tankini. You know, what, what's, what's going on? What if your skin tones don't go with white? Are you just stuck for all eternity? Oh, how terrible is that? John says, in this state, you will be righteous. That's what he's saying. We will be incapable of being unfaithful to God. Our hands will do acts of service. Our mouths will speak words of beauty and truth. In Revelation 14, 5, it says, No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. No remorse, no regret, no shame. This is redemption. Revelation 21, verse 1. See? Oh, you're right there, back and forth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away. Again, in a Jewish sense, this is renewal. It's not, I'm going to destroy it. It's going to, I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to make it what it was meant to be. And there was no longer any sea. So there's no sea. Really? What does God have against the ocean? Does he not like surfers or sailors? Does he got a problem with that? 
No, the sea was a place of danger. John earlier speaks of the sea as giving up its dead. John's in prison on an island. The sea separates him from everything and everyone he loved. He's a prisoner of the sea. When he says no more sea, it means that on that day, we'll no longer be separated from one another. Physical, spiritual barriers, they all come down. No more abandoned children, no more broken homes. The sense of oneness that God has will be ours. Revelation 21, 4, he says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Love becomes redeemed. Everything becomes redeemed. Heaven is the only place where true relationships are ever available. This is why we try and get you guys involved in gospel communities and small groups, because this is part of the point of heaven, restored community, restored relationships again. And starting to do this is a little piece and slice of heaven here as we do this correctly. Heaven is the only place where real relationships are available. John speaks of hell much different than he does of heaven. In Revelation 19.3, hell is a place where the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Smoke is the expression of a conquered city that is burned. From a distance, you see the wreckage, you see all the smoke. Once there were schools and homes and malls, people played, they fell in love, but no more. It's, It's all gone. I've heard some people say things like, oh, I wouldn't mind going to hell. All my friends are going to be there. Well, you need new friends for one, all right? But secondly, they think that hell is like a bar where it's always happy hour. And that's the opposite of John's vision. All the things that make hanging out with your buddies possible, honesty, relationship, friendship, kindness, goodness, these are all gifts from God. And when we reject God, it means that you are rejecting those things. As heaven shows streets of gold to reflect the perfect friendship of people and community, hell is the exact opposite. No buddies, utterly alone, world of gray. You're angry because you will be aware of what you gave up to follow yourself and the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And that is not God's intent. God's intent is restoration and redemption. He wants to build community and life. He is a sustainer. And when we see God, what are we going to see? What is he going to look like? Glad you asked again. Open to Revelation chapter 1. And I'm going to describe this to you and show you this from what John sees. Revelation 1, starting in verse 14, starts like this. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. Now, in our day, white hair is to be avoided. Like, nothing worse than white hair is like no hair, right? We want in John's day, this is a symbol, this is a wisdom and righteousness that God has all the wisdom and He's eternal. And one day, that's all at our disposal. And you will never say a foolish word again. He says, and His eyes were like a blazing fire. Eyes like fire. He's got Superman eyes. So, any, you grow up, anybody, and, and you're doing something wrong, and all of a sudden your mom's like, boom, and she's like right there. It's like, where did she come from? She got the Superman eyes. Like, that's what it means. He, Jesus sees everything. Nothing escapes His attention. He sees it all. His eyes missed nothing. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. He's got seven stars in his right hand. His right hand, that means ready for action. The right hand was considered the most noble. You heard the phrase right hand man? That's because it's the most, guy, most noble guy. He stands next to you. You, you trust him. That's why a soldier with a, with a sword in his right hand is ready for battle. I'm sorry if you're left-handed. Apparently, Jesus was right-handed. Bummer for you. Uh, stars. Stars are the messengers of the churches. The churches are all safe in God's hands. And out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. So he's got a sword sticking out of his mouth? So, would he work at a carnival at one point? What, what's the deal? What, what, is that, what does that even look like, this, this God sword coming out of his mouth? The sword is a symbol of power. It means that Jesus has unopposable authority. Everything he says, it is so. He speaks and it is so. And his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Pretty crazy, right? 
Now, look at verse 12 in Revelation chapter 1. Who is this that John's talking about? I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Among the lampstands was someone what? Like a son of man. Son of man. That's who John just described. The son of man, Jesus. In Revelation 1.17, after he explains all this, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, because his world has just been blown wide open of who Jesus is in his glory. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. Why is that important? Because we have political and social and cultural and economic rulers and Jesus is Lord over everyone, whether they know it or not, from presidents to prime ministers to Democrats to Republicans to Bill Gates to Oprah to Donald Trump to Dan Rather to to Big Bird to Bruce Springsteen to Madonna to Steven Spielberg to Wall Street to the Taliban to Israel to Russia to the world. Everyone, and they may not realize Jesus is the ruler now and maybe not tomorrow, but one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess the stubborn and the proud, that Jesus Christ is Lord over all. When John sees this person, he falls at his feet as though dead. And you see one of the best moments in Scripture, it says, then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. What hand? His right hand. His all-powerful right hand that holds everything in it. Richard Mao is the president of Fuller Theological Seminary. And he gives an example in one of his books that I think is pretty cool about what this looks like. One day, he said, when he was in kindergarten, a visitor comes to his classroom. He's wearing a big red suit. And he's got a white hair and a, and a white beard, and, and his eyebrows are white as snow. He had, he had black boots on, a big black belt. His voice is gravelly and strong, and he stands in front of the kids, and he goes, ho, ho, ho. And all the kids are like, oh. And they're starting to freak out. And then he says, I'm here to see who's been naughty and who's been nice. How you've behaved. Who will come tell me what they want? Now, all the five-year-olds are just terrified. Like, oh, my goodness. What's going on here? You know, Santa stood among them and his glory shone around them. And they were low afraid. You know, that's... Nobody moves. And so the teacher is not knowing why nobody is volunteering for the judgment seat of Santa. But Santa then looks at Richard Mao and he says, you come sit in my lap. Now Richard's like, I don't know why I was chosen for destruction. But I started to walk forward with, with his head down. And now what Richard didn't know is that Santa was actually this nice man from his church, Mr. Cooper. He actually, Richard actually liked Mr. Cooper a lot. And so when he gets very close, Mr. Cooper pulls back his beard and he goes, hey Richard, it's me, Mr. Cooper. You don't need to be afraid. You already know me. John falls at Jesus' feet. He is terrified. Jesus reaches out, puts his hands on him and says, John, it's me. You don't need to be afraid. I got you. I think as Jesus says to you and I, you don't need to be afraid. He has a plan to restore all of creation. He has a plan to redeem everything. He is the Son of Man. He holds everything in His hand. And nothing can take you from Him. Period. What we see of heaven and this redemption is what God calls His children to bring to earth by how we live and what we do. In in Matthew 6.10, Jesus prays in the Lord's Prayer, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Bring heaven to earth. How does God accomplish this? It is His strength, it is His power, but He does it through His people. We should be a people who understand what God calls His people to in restoration, in redemption, in hope. We're to be people of hope and truth and trust and honesty and undivided people living undivided lives because we follow the Son of Man. We follow Him and what He calls us to. We don't need to be afraid. We simply need to step out into who He calls us to be. 
a people who bring heaven to earth by how we live. Redemption and restoration. There is a reason why every single week we serve you guys communion. Because communion is the place where we understand the beginnings of this redemption and restoration. That our great God, the Son of Man, came in the person of Christ and He dies. That's why you break that cracker, which represents His body, which was broken for you and I. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice, it represents His blood that was shed for you and I. This is the beginning of the understanding of redemption of all of creation. Christ dies, He rises from the dead so that we can be a people who begin to live the life He truly calls us to live, fully alive, fully engaged in the creation He calls us to. And one day, we will see Him as He is. But now, He calls us to live in such a way that we bring heaven to earth in the redemption and restoration of all things, as His people truly living as those redeemed people. You and me. It's kind of crazy. I don't know if I'd pick you and me to do it. But He does. And He gives us the strength and power to do it. The band's going to come up. And we will worship God through communion. We're going to worship God through song. The band will do a couple songs. And before you take communion this morning, ask God just to give you a glimpse of what Son of Man actually means. Him and His glory, strength holding everything in His hands, maybe a sword in His mouth, unopposable authority. You know, all that that entails. It's simply amazing. I worship God through prayer. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you have never understood Christ in this way or what He calls you to in bringing heaven to earth and the restoration of all things, go and pray with them. If you don't know Jesus at all, they would love to introduce you to who Christ is. Uh, it, he's, he's so much more than what this world tries to portray Him as. So much greater. Um, we worship God through giving. There's offering boxes in the sidewall and in the back. And we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. We offer that opportunity every single week. I also worship God through fellowship. There's some food and stuff in the back. And again, the reason we give you guys food in the back is not so we can fill you up before lunch and send you out. It gives you an opportunity to talk to other people. I mean, this whole idea of community is something that God himself lives within in the Trinity. He's a triune God, lives in community within himself. He calls his people to also live in community. When everything is truly redeemed, we will live in perfect community with each other and with him. And so we need to begin to start that now. Again, it's one of the reasons we do the gospel communities, so that you guys can understand what this is supposed to look like. So if you're not in a small group, gospel community, sign up. Get in one. All of you. Live as God calls you to live, bringing heaven to earth, and we will do this more fully together as a people, not individually, but as a community. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I do ask that you would bring heaven to earth, that your kingdom would come that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven and that we would honor you fully. Father, we know that many times what we do is, is we get our eyes just so focused upon ourselves that we don't look and see the redemption and renewal that you are bringing. And I ask this morning that you would get our eyes off of us. Place them upon you. so we live in full faith and assurance and trust of what you are doing, even when we don't understand it, in the renewal and the restoration and redemption of all things. God, have us be a people who bring you more than just songs, but a people who simply give you everything. Understanding you as Son of God, Son of Man, King of Glory, 
our great and good and glorious God. Thank you for loving us and seeking us and redeeming us. And then thank you, more importantly, for allowing us to partner with you in the work of redemption for creation. We are so unworthy, and yet you make us worthy by your grace and goodness. Have us live that way. We ask these things in your son's great and good name.